Hola, soy Andrés Cantor y los invito a ver la Copa Mundial de la FIFA. Vive cada jugada y emocionate con nosotros porque el Mundial lo es todo. Del 20 de noviembre al 18 de diciembre en español por Telemundo y Peacock. It's that time of year when we can use the most wonderful of the English language's legitimate words, spooktacular, because this is Pop Screen's Halloween special. We are the Geek Show podcast dedicated to the good, the bad, and the ghoulish of movies, either starring by or about pop stars. No other podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from documentaries to science fiction, from country and western to hip-hop. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I am a film critic for The Geek Show, as well as a filmmaker, and I also write for Horrified, the British horror website. I'm joined this week by... Rob Simpson, uh, site editor with The Geek Show, amongst many other sins. And Mick Snowden, occasional contributor to a variety of podcasts on many aspects of popular culture. Indeed, indeed. So... David Cronenberg has said that the inspiration for today's film was imagining what would happen if a man got home from work and put on a video cassette of pornography. If Videodrome is what he thinks that situation would play out like, Cronenberg's home life is a lot more chaste than we all suspected. A bizarre, grisly death trip into the snuff movie mythology and the looming spectre of video censorship released just one year before Britain banned so-called video nasties. Videodrome might well be his weirdest film, and he's adapted William S. Burroughs. Yet it still attracted name talent, including the reason we are gathered here today, Deborah Harry, seeing here mutating into a movie star after the then-recent breakup of Blondie. And he is... The thing that I wanted to ask first and foremost, perhaps more so than any movie we have covered on this podcast, I quickly forgot that Debbie Harry was Debbie Harry. Yes. Yeah, there's not a lot of movies you can say that about. I not that in no. a movie. No. I think, I think there are two things that help. Mm. One, the trademark blonde hair is gone. Yeah, that shouldn't be that big a thing, but when your band is literally called Blondie, Blondie yeah. it does make a big difference. Yeah, and, and the second thing is, I found myself distracted by the close-up shots on the TV of her lips, which made it look like she was the stunt double for the poster for the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> Can I just say, is that an actual video drawn poster you have behind you, Mick? No, but I thought it was the I thought it was the most terrifying of all the ones I could find because although the imagery is quite tame, the words based on a true story are quite horrific. <laughs> this is this is what I wanted to ask. Yeah, do we think this is based on a true story? I mean. <laughs> I mean, there's an element of me that thinks it must be because James Woods. <laughs> it's true in the sense of a man had a TV station once. Yeah. And it's we all know <laughs> that videotapes do exist. And we do know that there are things called Japanese pornographers, don't we? Yes, yes, we do. Oh, thank God it's not just me then. <laughs> Actually, one of the things that I was very amused at looking at that is it, it plays with that kind of mythology of the smutty foreign film, doesn't it? Because yeah. it's like, this is some years before Japan got stereotyped as the locum for weird, pervy shit, but it, it was kind of bubbling under. You know, in a previous generation, it would have been Denmark. Before that, well, it would have been Sweden. 
internationally anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Domestically, oh, yeah. Japan was well aware of how pervy they are. But of course, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course, a few years after this was getting released on home video, um, Holland had uh, sort of very similar video drum style um, broadcasts going on because their their satellite footprint overlapped the UK's satellite footprint. So if your dish was slightly misaligned, you could sometimes get this very wavy, ghosted late-night <laughs> Dutch television, which I, I think the best way to describe it is excessively liberal. Uh, well, it's, 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 you'd expect as much, wouldn't you? Yeah. But it, 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 it was it was like that. Um, it was like finding a ghost channel between actual channels. It was, it was weird. Mm. Which is why my favourite joke in Videodrome is after the lengthy speculation that Max Wren, the James Woods character, and his underling have about where this Videodrome signal, the Videodrome signal, which is just like uninterrupted, horrific, sexualized torture with absolutely no plot, and they fascinate, they're fascinated by the idea of what foreign flesh pit it must come from. Yeah. And then I, I think it's, is it Pittsburgh? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> They think it's in Malaysia initially, but then no, it's in Pittsburgh. And that's quite nice for a British audience because, of course, shortly after this was released, as I've mentioned in the intro, Videodrome was categorised as foreign filth likely to corrupt our healthy Indigenous citizens. It was. Yeah, it's kind of a weird uh, thing, that, because at the time it probably had that sense of danger. And the first time I watched it, it really felt like anything could happen at any time. But this is the second time, and it felt much tamer. It's really weird. Really? Or maybe I've been I, corrupted entirely by other know, things. I, 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 I don't, just, I don't yeah. think you have, Rob. I, I've, I've noticed this over the past probably 10, 10 years, but it's been more focused since I've been doing things like Cinema Eclectica and, and Pop Screen and stuff. The things, the things that we were horrified by in the 70s and 80s are tame in comparison to what people allow to get away with. I mean, if you, if, if you think back, and I think we covered it, or we certainly mentioned it in... No, we, def we definitely covered it on Cinema Eclectica. Flesh and Blood. Oh, yeah. Yes. It was, it was pornography it, by any other name when it was released. But you look at it now, and that hour and a half contains less nudity than the first five minutes of an average episode of Game of Thrones. That's <laughs> that, yes, yeah. It's funny, I actually found it slightly more hard-hitting, and I think I've worked out why, because when I first saw this, it was on BBC Two. And I think we had that debate before we went in about whether Videodrome, the film, was ever shown on Moviedrome, the TV show hosted by Alex Cox. It doesn't seem to be, but I did definitely see it on BBC Two. And it was slightly trimmed. I remember the death of, uh, is it Barry, Barry Convex? Yeah, Barry Convex. Mm. I remember that as being one moment where it just hits for a fraction of a second. You think, what? wait, what the hell was that? Where there's in the version, the uncut version that I saw for this podcast, it's actually pretty protracted. Yeah, yeah it's like about a minute of mm. him but doing I, whatever that is. But I, I still think that in comparison to some of the stuff that would follow, certainly the stuff that gets the attention now for a, a modern horror movie to try and catch itself, class itself as a modern horror movie, it's term in comparison. Yes, I know. Or, or, um, or, I like you mentioned, Rob. I'm desensitized to it because I'm a bad person. Remember, we did watch, you know, the Littlest Reich together, Mick. We did. You remember that? I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly. That's what I mean, though. You know, Videodrome, for for all its its gruesome body horror, which obviously is Cronenberg's stock in trade. It's tame in comparison to something like the Littlest Reich. There's that to it, but I think it's 
I mean, I've been watching Children of the Corn recently, and oh, oh, God, why did they agree to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And in the third one, it has this scene where the corn uh, rips somebody's head off and pulls it apart from the body, and he's just, it's got, he's like a monster of like a spine, more spine than any human has ever had, especially him. An corn and a head. Which is just incredibly grisly. If you've seen any sort of Screaming Mad George movie, you think, okay, okay, now calm down, calm down. <laughs> you know, you got money for effects. Just easy off. And but that I, was what, 1990s? Something so, like that, yeah. But I think, yeah. I think this, is, this is the point. I think with Videodrome, the violence that you see and the gruesome nature of that violence is not as shocking because it's not there just to shock it's there to show how the video drum phenomena is affecting our characters mm. whereas yeah whereas giving a ripping somebody's spine out and them having more spine than any human ever ever had before that's just there for that's just to use up the budget isn't it it's silly it's just silly yeah. nonsense so, but i i'm i'm gonna compare video drum now to brass eye good good this is already a comparison i like Right. Wow. So, <laughs> in 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 much the same way as Brass Eye uh, was meant to warn us about the direction in which news and documentary television could take us, and TV makers failed to watch it and take note and say, actually, yes, we're going too far. They used it as a blueprint. Yeah. Similarly, I would say Videodrome, ITV Two. yeah that's true i would rather watch 10 uninterrupted hours of the signal that james woods picks up (laughs) than half an hour of celebrity juice (laughs) all love island oh what's the one with is that an itv2 one the one with Catherine ryan where there's one woman 10 blokes and some of them are lying about whether they've got a girlfriend or not I that think does sound like the setup to a porn movie, though, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's a very specialised channel. That's one of them Dutch channels you've no, been watching. The, the, trailers, the trailers are on this morning. <laughs> Again, it, we're so desensitized now. Having worked from home for the last 18 months because of COVID, I'm certainly desensitised to Holly and Phil. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, look at X-Files now. X-Files was like 9 o'clock. It felt really dangerous and dirty and now you can put on like some random digital channel and it's on at like midday yeah. dinner. Yeah. it's wild isn't it yeah the censorship issue that kept coming to my mind with videodrome is that if censorship has any legitimacy it's to prevent people from seeing things that might be imitatable right you know yeah. even the <laughs> even the keenest uh, opponent of censorship probably thinks they don't actually want their three-year-old niece learning how to use ninja throwing stars. Hmm. But w- where is the imitatable violence in Videodrome? If this had gone out as a PG, would we have like an epidemic of kids in school playgrounds growing gun-dispensing vaginas in their stomachs? Well... And whipping each other in mud clay dens. Yeah. Okay, maybe that bit that, bit that, admissible. That, that was the thing. Yeah. That I, that, that's the thing that I and, find that sort of uh, disconcerting is that when they're watching the tape, there's all this horrific violence going on, and there's the discussion about where it's going on and stuff. And then James Wood inquires about the substance used to make the den in which it happens. That is probably <laughs> exactly what James Woods is like, though, what isn't it? If we're what honest, is that? Is, that, is that clay? Alabaster, maybe? I'm talking about sort of feasibility issues of video drum. This is a channel which basically shows porn and murder. How are they employing that many people? <laughs> After what a while, demographic? get round it. It's a bad workplace. <laughs> it's not going to get a lot of money in. Who's going to advertise that? That's that's bad business model from Max Bren. One <laughs> slightly weird thing about Videodrome is I mentioned that this is kind of circling around snuff mythology, which had really only started to coalesce in the decades before yeah. uh, this was released. And every time I watch a film about snuff, whether it's a horror film, a crime film, whatever, 
I'm always enraged by the idea that the villains are so stupid they record themselves committing crimes and then sell it. Whereas yeah. Videodrome, which has a golden opportunity to do mad shit like that because it is a film that is not entirely set in reality, mm. actually has the villains disguise their appearance and disguise where the signals come from. Videodrome yeah. is a more realistic film than Cold in July. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cold in July is also pretty cool, but I, I like Cold in July. But that bit with the, you know, the bit I mean, where the guy sort of leans forward into the camera, and you think, well, you've just made yourself pretty easy to catch. Yes. Going back to that thing, you can imagine coming back from school or work, and you find your kid doing questionable things with the TV. There's another imitable thing. The 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 other thing that. I was thinking when you were saying about civic TV's um, output and correlational uh, level of staffing is yeah. yes. I remember 1986 when Channel Four launched its red light zone. Ah uh, yes, yeah. And therefore doubled its ratings just by putting a red triangle on the naughty films. The most extraordinary thing is when you look back at what those films were, it was stuff like Jean-Luc Godard's Numero Deux or Michelangelo Antonioni's identification of a woman. And you just feel so sorry for the chronic masturbators who tuned in just for some breasts. Really. Uh, now, you only got 50% of your references right there. Oh? Yeah. Go on. Identification of a woman was one of the films but the other one wasn't. You can't have this memorised. No, I've got a list in front of me. (laughs) 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 No, the the film's covered in that strand, and it only ran for about four months, were Femrock, um, Pastoral Hide and Seek, Yes. Which, sound, which sounds like something that National Geographic would show at like seven o'clock on a Sunday evening. And it looks like something you happen after you accidentally eat a whole pie made of acid. <laughs> <laughs> Throw away your books and rally in the street. <laughs> identification, <laughs> identification of a woman. Uh, Pixoti. Wow, that is not a sexy film. <laughs> the Clinic. Montenegro, a.k.a. Pigs and Pearls. Uh, Die Beirut. And I apologise to any German listeners for my pronunciation there. Oh, right, that's what it was meant to be. Okay. Um, Out of the Blue, Dennis Hopper. And uh, The Wall by Yilmaz Guni. Oh, I was going to say, not the not, Pink, not Floyd Pink Floyd film. No. Although that's but... disturbing enough in its own right. Yeah, and, and probably sort of no less creepily unerotic than them rock or something, <laughs> yeah. really, is it? Well, that was the thing. Channel 4 announced that they were doing this thing as a public service thing to, to ensure that the wrong people didn't watch that kind of film. Of course, the wrong people were people like me, sort of, 16, 17-year-old boys who'd heard that a red triangle meant naughty bits. <laughs> it does add a bit of clarity to my picture of how you've turned out like this, Mick. <laughs> <laughs> we only had four channels, Graham. We had to make our own entertainment. <laughs> All that Channel 4 tell us when the good bits were on. There's a running gag in this film, and again, I think one of the things about Videodrome and about a lot of Cronenberg films is I do think it's quite funny, Um, but there's a running gag where uh, Max Wren keeps getting these soft porn films into distribute, and of course the story purpose of seeing this is because he he thinks that they're all so tedious and unadventurous compared to the Videodrome signal. But the practical uh, purpose of it, I think, is that it is David Cronenberg having a a bit of a go at something he almost ended up doing. Were you aware, Mick and Rob, that David Cronenberg nearly ended up making soft porn in his early career? I was, yes. I wasn't. But God, I'm frightened by what that might have entailed. 
I know, right? Apparently, someone had seen his early shorts, realised there was a lot of sex in it, and decided to get him to shoot a test of a scene where a couple were having sex on a swing. And they came into the studio to find him actually lying under the swing, looking up and thinking, yeah, this 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 isn't going to work, is it? Have we got anything else he could do? Well, that explains Crash. Yes. I love Crash. I think Crash has been fully vindicated. Now, as we learned this year, you can fuck a car and win the palm door these days. Is that what happens in Titan? Right at the start, it makes absolutely, uh, d- doesn't waste any time, Cadillac fucking within the first 10 minutes, apparently. I really, really want to go and see that in the cinema and find like the awkward reactions when people realise what they're walking into. <laughs> that is the yeah. best thing. Forget the movies. That is the best thing about the cinema. Oh, dear. So, here's another statement for you, which you may find con- controversial. Okay. Every character in this is an antagonist. I could sort of see that, yes. Yeah. 100%. Agree with no, that. There, there are no good guys in this at all. But the character, some of the characters are absolutely fantastic. Oh, yeah, I, they're fantastic I, I, characters. I, I'm not so sold on Max Wren, but I would have loved to have seen a movie in Brian Oblivion. Brian Oblivion is so great. Brian Oblivion, I think, comes from... I think there's a box somewhere in Hollywood that you can just get certain characters out of. Uh, David Cronenberg went to the box and he got Brian Oblivion. And then um, who directed the first Robocop movie? Oliver Hawthorn. He went to the box and he got, I'll buy that for a dollar guy. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. Yeah, um, Brian Oblivion is uh, like a media theorist who's based on Marshall McLuhan, who at that time was like a major public intellectual. And any time there was any kind of development in the mass media, a new show would just wheel him on and go, so Marshall McLuhan, videotape, what's that all about, eh? And he would have <laughs> like a brilliant answer. Uh McLuhan actually taught at, I think it was the University of Toronto, while Cronenberg was studying there, although he didn't take any of Cronenberg's classes. Right. Uh, it wasn't, didn't, um, he wanted to be a psychologist, didn't he? Uh, David Cronenberg. Cronenberg at the beginning, before he discovered movie was an option for him. I can't remember that, but it makes so much sense. Because the theory that's in it, um, but yeah, back to the things that every other characters are antagonists. There's Max Wren, who it's it's fairly obvious. Yeah, he's yeah, it's, it's got no real redeem. It, he's he's quite charming, but other than that, he's you know got no even, redeeming features. <laughs> even back in eighties Hollywood, there were very few heroes whose major motivation was I'd like to distribute snuff porn. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Debbie Harry. I mean, she starts off fine enough. And then you see her at work and she's like a radio psychologist. She's the worst. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> the worst. <laughs> I want my money. And she doesn't get better from there. She just gets worse and worse and worse. I think my favorite shot of this is just that two shots of Debbie Harry and James Woods watching the video drone signal. And it just has this wonderful air of, yeah, date night, everyone. Let's just kick back with some snuff. Yeah. You can probably almost... <laughs> is date night round at James Wood's house. Yeah, yeah, you can almost imagine them with a big bowl of popcorn be- between. Them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is it Barry Convex? Barry Convex, yes, very frightening guy. He, he can kind of make a case for him being a protagonist and relatable, but in take a little bit of mental gymnastics. I mean. The film itself takes a bit of mental gymnastics to figure out. Yeah. 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 Because he essentially traps Max Bren. That's his Mm. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. This is one of those things. It's like the the architect in the Matrix. I'm going to have to... I've lost enough train of thought. (laughs) Just just remember there is no spoon. (laughs) Yeah, but... He's kind of the pivotal character in all of it, really, isn't it? He's the, mm. the instigator, the protagonist, and the eventual victim, I guess. 
if you believe that any of this actually happened, because there is a theory, I can't remember the cut-off point, but there is a certain point in the movie where people believe that everything after that is a hallucination. Like there literally is a, everything. There is a specific point where Brian Oblivion tells Max Wren, half of your reality is now video hallucination. And it feels wise to like assume that escalates as the film goes on. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's when he puts on the helmet. I think it's before that. That but... helmet thing is really good though. And I was surprised that there's a lot of stills of Debbie Harry from the like the vision that Max Wren has in the helmet going around. And I think it was used as a publicity still for a bit, but none of them have the original colouring where everything is red. And the reds in this movie are astonishing. It's not just the blood. Anything that's red is so vivid. And I'd forgotten that that happened and I really loved it. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's the effects are well subtext to them. This is a movie like which is a thousand percent subtext, isn't it? Yes, yeah. essentially, yeah. Um, in the violence, oh, like Freud would have a field day with this. <laughs> yes. Um, and the actual like meaning of the movie as well. Uh, the subtext just seeps into everything, much to the point where. I've heard people say that this movie doesn't actually work very well in the cinema. Oh? Because it's not really talking about cinema. It's talking about home media. It's talking about things that you share and sort of the, the privacy of your home. So it heightens the meaning behind everything that happens so like, by it, watching it at home. And at so cinema, like, there's that sort of separation between you and what it's trying to say. So it's almost like that Blair Witch effect that the media that it's aimed at or contains means it's rendered useless for the big screen. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of like all like found footage as well. Found footage doesn't yeah. make sense to be in the cinema either, really. I think that makes a lot of sense because the very first thing we see in this movie is Max Wren with, and this is one of the many things in the film that I think is so prescient. He has like a, a television station that is like his desktop assistant and says, hello, Max, today you've got to do this, this and this. And he's watching this in bed. And when I watched this for the show, listeners, I was watching it in bed too. And I felt very, very weird about that all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. I just thought I could I could have set it up so that my Google Assistant woke me up by playing that clip from the video <laughs> Yes. How weird would that have been? Yeah, it, it's quite complicated though, isn't it? Really, what it's trying to say because it was about sort of home video and mm. TV stations and um, sort of separating media into sort of a very private thing. Yeah. Where things can get niche and, and messed up and weird. But it also works the internet, basically, really, doesn't it? Completely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I watched Cronenberg's Existence uh, for Cinema Eclectica a few years back, and I liked Existence. I liked it much more than I thought. I think it's a very fun watch, but it does suffer from the fact that anything Cronenberg might want to say about the internet, about video games, about anything in that kind of area is something that is already kind of latent in Videodrome. Yeah. All, all you need to do is change the media, and yeah. you're you're saying the same things. It's that uh, it can control you. Um, it can it becomes personal in this uncomfortable yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think he imagined it being that prescient. Not many movies are this prescient, honestly. But it's no. kind of miraculous how it's just it's evergreen as far as what it's trying to say. I think maybe part of that is the Marshall McLuhan influence, that when Marshall McLuhan was talking about media, he wasn't talking about it in that kind of natural-born killer's way of, you know, it's television. Is that good or bad? Can you work that out for us? It's like a, a more abstract view. What does it mean that we now have media in the home? What does it mean that we can now have media in the bedroom? And it's like the fact that this is saying that about video cassettes doesn't really make a difference. The essential issue it's talking about is something that's still relevant. That's it. It's, it, it's, it's <laughs> a, entertainment used to be 
prior to TV and radio and, and stuff, entertainment was a thing you had to go out and seek. Yeah. And now suddenly mm. it's the invader. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, you can look at that in two ways. You can say that it's more comfortable, that it's more cosy, that it's more familiar, or as you can say, as you said, you can say that it's an invader, that it's wormed its way into your private life. Mm. Here's that, the thing, the, though. That's the thing, though, isn't it? You, you can't really escape it. No, no. You know, there, there, are, there are areas of popular culture that I cannot escape. Yeah, I I didn't want to know about the Catherine Ryan show on ITV two, but I happened to walk through the living room as a trailer for it was on. Yes, <laughs> I'm now I'm now getting treatment to try and have that uh, sort of removed from a. If you think that's bad, there's the TV show in which you know I can't remember the name uh, who plays Keith Fleming. Um, Lee Francis, oh, that's the his one name. where he plays Amanda Holden's nan. Yes, I wish I never knew about that, but that is buried deep in here. Deep. Are you happy, Cronenberg? Are you happy? Listeners, you're, you're getting a free reaction video this week as you watch my face as I learn that that's a thing that exists. <laughs> and I, I wasn't sure that that's what it was on the ad and the advert. Something weird with that woman, elderly woman's face. I don't know I thought, that. Well, and I went on Twitter and I thought, oh, initially, oh. <laughs> initially, I thought it was a new comedy vehicle for Elton John. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then, no, I, I, I noticed the unfunny taint of um, Keith Lemon permeating yes. the dialogue. Indeed, yes. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about Videodrome, uh, which we'll all be happy to get back on the comparatively yes. less disturbing topic of an early David Cronenberg film. What do we think this film is saying about censorship? I don't think it's pro. It kind of I, I, make a case for it to be pro censorship, really, couldn't you? I think you could. Yeah, not as much. Wiggle room. Either, yeah, I, I, I think what it's saying is that um, whilst it may be wrong to control what people consume, at the same time, you can't rely on their self-control to keep them safe. Yeah. Mm. Well, wording it another way, you know, freedom is liberating, but where's the where's the limit? Where's yeah. the point where you've gone too far? And Max Ren is that point. He's both of those things, like he humanized in a, in, as an object, you, as an idea. You could very easily watch this and say that it's pro censorship because you know watching Videodrome turns Max Venn into a murderous freak, which you know doesn't sound great. But um, I think the first time I watched it, I thought, is David Cronenberg trying to do what I think Dario Argento is doing in Tenebrae, which came out around the same time, where he's like all right, you say that my movies inspire violence. Okay, if they did, this is what that would look like. And it's a pretty insane film. Mm. But I don't know. The sec Watching it a second time now, I think Cronenberg is kind of non-committal about it. He's, he's not saying, as a lot of people who were against censorship did at that time, he's not saying, oh, it's ridiculous to think that media affects people's behaviour. He's saying, yeah, maybe media does affect people's behaviour and maybe that's fine. Maybe living out your fantasies is going to turn people into something different, but that's new or more authentic. I mean, I don't think he accepts Max's sort of glib explanations about, oh, it's just a safety valve. It's somewhere you can go and live your fantasies. Yeah. But equally... I don't think he views like the killing spree that Max goes on as being that bad a thing in the end. Mm. Well, he never really takes a stance on any of his characters, does he? He no. kind of um, remains ambivalent. And then either got, good nor bad. He did a lot of great interviews when his first commercially released feature, Shivers, was out, where people said, look, th this is like the most depressing ending that I've ever seen, that you've got this 
plague that turns people into rapists and murderers and the end is it just gets out it gets into the general population that's such a bleak ending and Cronenberg's response was it's good for the virus which I think is like <laughs> that's uh-huh. like the, the key to David Cronenberg's thinking he doesn't he, he just he's very Canadian he doesn't want you to think he's judging his turtle each sex monsters <laughs> that's that's the beautiful thing about David Cronenberg. Not you wouldn't think of it as watch his movies, but he is a very funny man. Yes, yes, yeah. But yeah, uh, so I know when I first saw this, um, it was just because it was a film with Debbie Harry in. Yeah, that was my one uh, my one motivation for watching it. Um, and at the time, there was probably not a teenage boy's bedroom wall that didn't have a picture of Debbie Harry on. Um, no, absolutely. And I'd be interested, I think when I first watched it, I think I did it as a fan of Cronenberg and Debbie Harry. So I'd be interested to know what that experience was like. Well, I mean, I'm trying to think when it was that I watched it. It certainly wasn't at the time it was out. I think it would probably have been about five or six years afterwards. Uh, probably in that gap that we had when Chris Stein was ill, where mm. there was very little Debbie Harry around. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking there's not enough of her in it. But then I was watching it from the wrong point of view. But one thing that comes across is that unlike a lot of films that have got um, pop stars in, it didn't feel like stunt casting. No, not at all. No. Um, and, and looking into it, it, it turns out that it was actually uh, a recommendation to Cronenberg um, that Debbie Harry be cast. And he, he saw it in Union City. Yes. Now, what I've seen about Union City does smack a little bit of stunt casting. Although they got a pretty great song out of it. Yeah. Because you've got uh, Pat Benatar in there as well, haven't you? Oh, have you? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. I've never seen Union City. Yeah, so um, maybe there's a little bit of a capturing a zeitgeist element to the to the casting of Union City, which is from 1980, so it's, you know. Um, but I, I do think that for her first female lead role, mm. it, she makes it look effortless um and it's such i mean i realized debbie harry has like a background in the punk movement so mm. she was never gonna like make a film debut in a remake of beach blanket bingo but even by mm. punk standards this is an astonishingly ballsy project to it want is. to be involved in yeah yeah so um And I think actually the fact that there's so so little of Nikki Brand's character in it, because she's she's built up quite a lot at the beginning Mm. and introduced, and there's all the the interplay between her and um, Max. Um, And then she's quite suddenly and quite brutally taken out of the picture and then just echoes throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah. It's... um, it's actually quite a. It makes the performance more powerful, I think, than um, that it would be if she'd been like you know, which was unlikely in the Cronenberg film. I accept that you know her and Max had gone off and ridden on into the sunset. You say that there yeah. was actually an ending to this, which Cronenberg filmed but cut, where it was revealed that Max Wren's killing spree was actually converting people into video signals in a kind of Brian Oblivion style and he met up with uh, with Nicky Brand and all of the other people who died on the Videodrome set at the end, um, which is why when, when he shoots one character, he says, I'll see you in Pittsburgh, that would have literally been yeah. the ending. They'd have been transferred into this video signal in Pittsburgh. And Cronenberg cut it for the most David Cronenberg reason imaginable, which is that he didn't want to imply there was an afterlife. Ah, <laughs> oh, David. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, the movie is kind of suggestive of an afterlife, you know, yeah. to 
to uh, become the new flesh, you have to get rid of the old flesh. Mm. Absolutely, That's yeah. One of the, the things that pops up at the back end of it. There is something quite sort of Christian about that ethos, isn't there? Rejecting yeah. the, the kind of earthly flesh in favour of the video reality. Yeah, and it's not even in that um, long-live-the-new-flesh element. There's actually bits of it, you know, there's, there's the sort of harbinger of doom aspect of, oh, Nikki's already dead. Mm. Whilst they're watching her being tortured and stuff, she's already dead. And Brian is already dead too, of yeah. course, because in, in one of the most fantastic twists in the whole thing, after we've seen Brian interact perfectly naturally through a video link with Max and Nikki on a chat show, it's revealed that he died ages ago. And there was just this sort of Borges-style library of video cassettes for every conceivable occasion that allow his family to keep up the pretense that he's still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Such a great moment that I love it. Yeah. Although I have to say, we're not really talked about opinions much on this. I'm not the biggest fan of this. I mean, this is the second viewing, and it's not it's not really clicked. I think there are there are the, the weird Cronenbergs, I realize every Cronenberg is weird, but the weird, weird Cronenbergs are kind of love it or hated affairs. I definitely have met people who are otherwise Cronenberg fans who, who aren't keen on this, aren't keen on Naked Lunch, aren't keen on Cosmopolis. I think it's just a strand of his work that is not for everyone. I mean, there's this running narrative that David Cronenberg's fans all come from his American output and mm. they all cite, like, video dramas, the favourite, but this isn't an American film, this is a Canadian film, which is one of the things that always runs through my head rampantly. This is fin financed by the uh, Canadian Film Office, I think was the name of the, the institute which put this together. They also did The Brood, which yeah. is weird. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what was happening at the Canadian Film Office, but the things that David Cronenberg's there put through are Actually, the history of the Canadian Film Office is uh, quite an interesting one because apparently what happened was James Wood turned up with this videotape. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of his Canadian films, but it's also unbelievably the first one that had any backing from an American studio. Not total backing. That would happen later with things like The Dead Zone and The Fly, but it... It is amazing. As uncommercial as his earlier films are, it is amazing that someone looked at this script at Universal and thought, yes, That'll we're fly. getting in on the David Cronenberg business. You say this, but we live in the weird reality where we, uh, a studio looked at Razorhead and thought, hmm, we should give this guy some money to make a big movie. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, in that case, it's the same weirdo who was giving Cronenberg his big break because The Elephant Man and The Fly were both produced by Mel Brooks. Yes, there were. He never gets credited as that, does he? Because he doesn't want, he wants a separation because he thinks Absolutely. people will think of yeah. it as a comedy because of his history. But what speak, a guy. Speak, speaking of confusing things for comedy, here's a thought <laughs> experiment for you, Graham. Okay. Go back to your video machine. Play video drum with the sound down and imagine that instead of James Woods, you've got um oh, I can't remember his name now. Robert Hayes from Airplane playing Matt Friends. <laughs> there are certain angles that Max is shot at that he looks more like Robert Hayes in Airplane than he does James Woods. Well, uh, which Brooks is it? Um, no, his bits in aeroplane is this is a bad week to stop sniffing glue, and he just yes. interject every seat. <laughs> that, that I think that would change my opinion on video drum. Just a little bit of ways like <laughs> Brian Oblivion keeps going over there. I picked the wrong week to stop taking cocaine. <laughs> but uh, going back to what Mick said earlier, I think that is kind of at the core of why I don't like it. None of the characters are even remotely close to being likable. It's like the anti Wilder people. Yes. I don't. I don't need a movie to have a like like likable cast. This is narrative on Letterbox that if all the characters are despisable, then you must despise the movie, which I is mean, nonsense, utter nonsense. But at the same time, with video drama, I just 
uh, I kind of hate all the characters. It's the difference between being unlikable and being hateable. Right, right. I think I think what it is is that this is. You've got to remember that that element of making all your characters that dislikable to have little or no redeeming features. Yeah. That was quite ahead of its time. Yeah. We now, we now live in a world where, you know, it's almost like your script will get rejected if your hero doesn't have a flaw. True. Yeah, um, but there was a, there's a trope in zombie movies where there's always that one character who's really hateable and he always gets the most grisly, horrible death. Mm. In Videodrome, everybody's that character. It, yeah. it, it, it doesn't always work either. Um, Cloverfield, for my money, I, I'm on the monster's side because all the protagonists are loathsome. Yeah, well, I don't like Cloverfield either, funnily enough. That's the thing, isn't it? I think when you talk about characters that are viscerally unlikable, as opposed to just, you know, they're the baddie, they kill people, so they're unlikable, that always strikes people differently. I always got it with Stephen Campbell, Moore's character in The History Boys, and then I found out later on that he was supposed to be based on Professor Niall Ferguson. I thought, oh, that's why I think he's such a catastrophic prick. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, I see what you mean, Rob. I think part of what saves Videodrome for me is, and I'll put my cards on the table, it's one of my favourite Cronenbergs. I think there's there's this, there's Crash, there's um, a history of violence that are always duking it out for the top spot. And I think that top three shows you that I do like conceptual Cronenberg. I do like when he's playing with ideas more than characters. Just to place my cards on the table, I love the fly... uh... Dead Ringers, um, The Brood, and The History of Violence. So I do like that conceptual side of Cronenberg too, but not here, maybe. Yeah. I think I can I can find Max Wren sort of understandable on the level that he has watched something nasty and he's become obsessed with it. Yeah. And I'm a David Cronenberg fan, so, you know, who am I to judge? <laughs> Well, I, you know, I, I, think, I guess <laughs> I, I think the thing is with um, with Max, he's understandably unlikable mm. because he's the small he's the small operator trying to just get Civic TV to be profitable, and it, to do that, yeah. he's he's got to do whatever he has to do to get the audience, yeah. and unfortunately. That ha- just happens to be by getting the most twisted and bizarre shit he can out on the screen. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fair. Uh, I don't think I don't think Nikki Brand is unlikable. I think she's a, definitely a shit therapist. I think you've I, got that. I, part I, right. I, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think there's a shallowness about her. Yeah. I don't think she. You, you're right. She's not. She's not dislikable. I. Think I'm going to say I'm going down the ITV2 route again. I think she's a bit Holly Willoughby. Are you <laughs> saying that because you like Debbie Harry though? Well, no, no. Yeah. I, I, I think because think... there is that sometimes you can't. I'm not saying it's the case of you two, but sometimes people can't celebrate, not separate no, no, even no, no, actor it, from role. Yeah, no. I'm, it's, I'm it, just, I'm just, I'm asking questions. I'm asking questions, and that's like suggesting you that you're being that. Yeah, no. What I'm saying is, um, and it, it kind of ties into what you're saying. What I'm saying is that um, Nikki Brand, to me, is the kind of character that you would see at a function and go, oh, she's quite attractive. You'd start talking to her and she'd be quite nice to talk to for about 10 minutes. And then she'd say something incredibly racist or sexist (laughs) or homophobic or something about 15 minutes into the conversation. You go, whoa, where did that come from? I can imagine yes. a yes. film where Nikki Brand could appear completely unaltered and be the villain. I can imagine her being one of the tabloid TV hosts in Gone Girl, for instance, and you would just find her loathsome. In this film, she's not actively trying to control people's brains with a tumour-inducing snuff porn channel, so I like her. <laughs> I mean, that does set it apart from the rest of the cast. Yes. Hey, but, just to go back to it, I have also heard like people in my position who don't like this, that the more you watch it, the more it clicks. 
I think there's almost a part of it that's willfully unclickable. Like, I I expected something similar. I expected that a few of the confusions that I had when I watched it the first time would snap into place when I rewatched it for this, and they haven't. I just find myself lost in a different way. But for me, it is one of those films where that is part of the pleasure. And I think that idea of being lost in this kind of media labyrinth is so intrinsic to what it's saying that it is the right decision. Maybe, maybe. But Debbie Harry, do you want to talk about her blondie, I'm assuming? No? Yeah, absolutely, because I am a huge Blondie fan. I am like a second-generation Blondie fan. I like inherited Blondie fandom from my mother. Um, and I just think Debbie Harry is great anyway, but when you think of all the shit she had to go through yeah. in like the 70s rocking, there is a wonderful and very famous story about James Woods on the set of this, where he was being put into position for that weird gun-dispensing, like, vaginal wound that he grows in his stomach. And it was taking forever to set that up. And he said something like, I came onto this film as an actor, and now I'm just the thing that supports the slit. And Debbie (laughs) Harry across the room said, yeah, now you know what that feels like. (laughs) If that doesn't make you a fan of her, I don't know what would. But yeah, and and this is the period where she was um, sort of between Blondie's uh, split after the Hurting album and... Mm. uh, her re-emergence as a solo artist about 86, 87 with French Kissing. Yeah. Um, there was a gap where she just did odd projects here and there as time allowed amongst the time when she was looking after Chris Stein and nursing him through his illness, which you think about modern pop stars and they all seem a bit too shallow to do that kind of thing. Put their no, career absolutely. on hold. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that all think... being said, she she also penned the worst rap song in music history ever. <laughs> so <laughs> you say that, but the Black Eyed Peas are still recording. There's yeah. time for them to overtake. <laughs> say what you like and, about Andre Freefa- Andre Three Thousand still alive. So who knows? Say, say what you like about Debbie Harry, but she's not Will I Am. I'm Andre Three Thousand is barmy, is what I was getting at more than anything. Well, yeah. I think when we talk about Debbie Harry's solo work, you're right, Mick, that it hadn't quite broken through. But I do want to bring up that her first solo album, which I think was just before uh, Blondie released uh, their last album, was Cuckoo, which has that extraordinary and very unnerving uh, H.R. Jiger-designed cover of her with the needles going through her face, which could come straight out of Videodrome. So her appearing in this isn't maybe as weird as it seemed to me at first. Okay. We're all looking up the cover of Cuckoo now, and quite right to it's amazing. But she is a remarkable success, really, because when you think about her peers, all the peers who came up through the punk scene in New York in the early mid seventies, who played CBGBs, hmm. that that which is a marvelous club, huge reputation. But it was the ninth circle of shit in hell, <laughs> <laughs> and most people of that generation never really. I mean, the Ramones, withstanding, none of them really broke through like she did. No, so, and I think despite origin, she is an incredible success. One of the interesting things to me about Blondie is that they managed to switch genre from punk, which at that time was considered to be a very underground, very authenticity focused scene, yeah. to making disco, which was regarded as the exact opposite. And of course, but both of those things are, are simplifications. There's a lot about punk rock that's cheap and silly, and there's a lot about disco that's actually quite sort of profound and meaningful. But that's how they were regarded. And I think there's an astonishing bravery to that as well, to be able to put out a song like Heart of Glass and say, you know what, this isn't a sellout. This is just a fucking great record. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the, the other thing, and I only became aware of this a few years, uh, a few weeks ago, I was uh, just prior to, because they've just released a, a new album that they recorded in Havana. Oh, yeah. Um, and when 
when they came back together for the No Exit album mm-hmm. and, and reformed in 99. 99, remember it vividly. Yeah, yeah. Maria, what a song. Um, indeed. Debbie Harry only said yes on the understanding that they just did new stuff, that they were right. going to go on tour and do Parallel Lines ad nauseum until they all dropped dead. They were going to yes. go out and do new stuff. Yeah. And and I think there's there's a kind of restlessness about her that really appeals to me. Again, that genre hopping aspect. I recently, during lockdown, I started listening to Polystyrene's solo work. Polystyrene, oh, yeah. the lead yeah, yeah. singer of X-Ray Specs, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is remarkable, but it sounds nothing like X-Ray Specs, so it flopped. And that was the stakes at the time that punk was kind of a purist all or nothing thing. You yeah. either were a punk and you were a punk until you died or you were a faker. Yeah. And they really, Blondie really navigated that very well. Yeah. Always Indeed. surprised though, despite getting off to a very good start with this most obviously, always surprised that her acting career never amounted to more. Well, I, I think she worked with renegades, really, didn't she? So outside of directors like John Waters, Cronenberg, uh, these sort of yeah, people. Yeah. And I, th- I think also part of it is that they're the kind of projects that you can operate on when you're, you're just doing odd, oddball projects when you can fit it in. You know, yes. the, the kind of movie project that takes like two years to film, you can't really get give that time over. So I think that's why she never had the big budget blockbuster career. Yeah, well. yeah, maybe there's a there's a lot of truth to that. Yes. So the one last thing that I think we have to talk about, and it's a name that I think Rob will like leap at the chance to talk about, Rick Baker. Oh yes, <laughs> these special effects in this. Amazing. Is it actually Rick Baker who did this? It is Rick Baker who did it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who's kind of an icon, really. And the effects are... Some way you see it and you think... At the, at the first time you see it, you think, oh, my God, this is like... What's that figure of speech? Some things are so advanced, they make look like magic. Yeah, yeah class. Things are so advanced, it looks like magic, yeah. First time you see it, everything's like that. Hmm. Like the TV thing, it, it just... It boggles the mind how they would even conceive of doing things like that. The exploding man, the, the slit in the stomach. These are all... Every one of them is an iconic event in in cinema, in horror cinema history. Everybody knows all of them very, the very thing, well. The thing is with the slit in the stomach is it's actually really easy to work out how that was done, but you, you find yourself looking for the join and you can't yeah. see it at all. It's so well concealed. Yeah, yeah. The, the one with the TV, I think it's a balloon, the way they've done it, because yeah. one hand, you, you see his hand touch it and the way it flexes around his fingers, yeah, it's like there's a balloon. Yeah, but it's then how do you rig up a balloon that then has back projection of someone's face on it? That's yeah, yeah. it's absolutely incredible. He's like one of the all-time great effects geniuses, honestly. Yeah. And this, and the fact that this isn't like the the crowning achievement of his career, it's just one of the many. It's yeah. a good point. This would be the high point of any other effects artist's career. When you look at um the thing, Robert Bourteen, I think that is. Yeah, I don't know anything else he's done. Can't think of anything. Um, well, what's he called now? Uh, Tom Savini. Yeah. All that he does is gar. Yeah. Good gar. Yeah, fine. But gar is gar. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Same really. You've seen them all. <laughs> yes, you have, Mick. Yes, you have. Even <laughs> spines being pulled out. You see, like a uh, <laughs> screaming mad George. His all is the same. It's like calm down, calm down. <laughs> Just have a cup of tea and calm down. He, he lacks all... the careful restraint you would expect from a guy called Screaming Mad George. It's true. Yeah. It's a Japanese guy as well. You know, it's not nothing what you think it'd be. A screaming Mad George is a bit of an enigma. Yeah. But everything which um, Rick Baker has done is kind of like genre defining. Yeah. And genre expanding. He's one of the all timers in my money. If anybody even, and I don't think it'll ever anybody even come remotely close to sort of matching his his peaks, because I watched Malignant recently, the new oh, yeah. James Wan movie. Hate it. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
uh, it's like a movie where everybody took cocaine and it's turned into a bad movie. I mean, that's not the sort of movie I like. I like it where everybody's taking cocaine and it's somehow magical. <laughs> it's the wrong. And, and apparently, he made that movie as a palate cleanser between Aquaman. <laughs> Is it Fair Aquaman? Enough. Aquaman? 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 He want, Aquaman? I think a quote there was, he doesn't like working in PG, he wants to do the guy. He doesn't want to pull away, he wants to show it all. And that's all CG. Mm. And it's silly, really, really silly. So I don't think there's going to be another Rick Baker because the industry won't allow there to be another Rick Baker. So with movies like this, I think they'll always be relevant as sort of parts of cinema history. They'll always be exciting to look at and experience, yeah. even if we know exactly how they're done. Yeah. They're incredible to watch. Well, the Just... thing is, it's that thing, isn't it? Uh, you know how it's done. Yeah. But you can't just go away and do it. No, absolutely. You you, see, you yeah. appreciate the craft, really, yeah. don't you? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like a Blue Peter episode where Rick Baker comes on and shows you how to make a person explode from the inside. Rick Baker, I mean, Rob is absolutely right. He's done so many things that have redefined uh, the part of cinema they dealt with. He's also got one particular claim to fame that I only found about when I was researching his work on this film, which is that he is in all likelihood the only person to have grossed out David Cronenberg. Oh. Wow. And his other clip of fame, Harry and the Andersons. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what he grows Cronenberg out with, actually. Um, <laughs> his original concept for the organic gun that Max Wren has that grows into his hand uh, was he wanted it to have eyes, teeth, and a retractable foreskin. And Cronenberg oh. said, ah, no, that's actually slightly too gross for me. Yeah, it went a bit more extreme with the existence gun, didn't it, if I remember? But it's been a long time since I've seen that. It's very meaty and it shoots teeth. I don't know. Um, I sort of, I feel like this gun is nastier because it, it of the way it burrows into your hand. The existence gun is kind of nasty, but I also looked at it and I thought, oh yeah, I think I remember picking that out of a takeaway curry one night. <laughs> Oh, right. So it's like the episode of Red Dwarf of the Curry Monster. That's basically it is very what... much like that. Yes. <laughs> okay. But if Rick Baker had used his original design, uh, that would make it this film an interesting uh, entry into this had Oscar buzz's Cronenberg quiz, where they go through all of his movies and say, "Okay, is this one horny, gross, or both?" <laughs> <laughs> I know that it's not really, you didn't really set this up, but this is the one part of horror which I just don't understand why it's constantly overlooked by like the Oscars. There's the best uh, costume and effects. Made for this sort of movie, and yet. And even like Star Trek, the costumes in Star Trek, wonderful. And then they give it, well, I don't know, Suicide Squad. I think Suicide Squad won something like that, didn't it? I think Suicide Squad did get makeup, actually, which is a, a, a horrific movie that has won best makeup, but not in the way you meant. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It has just nice costumes and, you know, got a bit of mud on there. And, you know, looks looks all <laughs> battered and stuff. But yeah, this is this deserves acknowledgement in the bigger than sort of the Chainsaw Awards. I think that's the the um, the horror awards that they do every year yes yeah and the ones where you get that horrible ugly man face statue that i can't remember the name of the rondo awards or something you've got you've got me thinking now because you know how the 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 comic book movies have been taking people away from niche areas and giving them blockbuster budgets like yeah take tt and uh, james wan and James Gunn, of course, who, I mean, as, as much as he's established in that arena now, it is still mad to think that someone could start out with trauma and end up working for Disney. And yeah, well, mix and made sliver, and it's, oh, give him like your child-friendliest thing possible. But, but whilst on the subject of James Gunn, can you imagine if instead of James Gunn, they'd appointed David Cronenberg to direct The Suicide Squad, and gave him uh, the Nathan Fillion character with the detachable arms. <laughs> yes. And, yes. And, and a supervillain called Weasel. 
Yeah. <laughs> and let's face it, uh, <laughs> Rucker's character is basically a scanner. I have yet to see the, the Suicide Squad. So, well, uh, it, yeah, it, but... it, it improves over the original in one important aspect. It's got three more letters in its title. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his son, Brandon Cronenberg, has kind of picked up the baton from uh, his dad, David. His Pick movie, Pos Possessor, which got, I didn't like it because it just felt like a, a tribute act to David, the dad, but many people loved it. Interesting companion pieces together. If you watch a video drama possessor back to back, you would get variations on very similar things. Do, do you pick up a baton from David Cronenberg or do you extract it's a it flesh from somewhere there isn't uh, well, a ball? No. <laughs> I, I just I was going to say something then and realized how bad it would have said. I was going to say you pick up a fleshy, a fleshy, you pick up a fleshy baton. And I don't know. Oh, Rob. <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> Well, I mean, if I haven't seen any brand Cronenberg stuff, but if you are disappointed with them, uh, you, it's it's no matter now because as Saint Vincent recently sang "Daddy's Home," uh, David Cronenberg is currently working on his first film since 2014. It looks to to use the this had Oscar buzz categorization. It looks gross as hell. Wonderful. Cool. It's been long, too far, long away from. What was the, horror for such a long time? What was the 2014 one? Was uh, Maps to the Stars? All right, which Cosmopolis. is yeah. interesting. Did you mentioned Cosmopolis earlier. Yes, yeah. And then he did a, a deadly method. No, a deadly method. A dangerous method. Yeah. Co yeah. Cosmopolis was that the Arpats one? It certainly was. Yeah. Yeah. There's a free copy on Blu-ray for anybody who wants it. Oh, oh, me, sir. Pick me, pick me. I love Cosmopolis. Ah, I love damn, he was too quick. <laughs> David Cronenberg <laughs> is the one man in the world mad enough to read a Don DeLillo novel and think, yeah, you can basically film that as is. Right, it's yours, mate. It's yours. Next time I see you, remind me before we meet up. How do I illuminate this thumbs up? Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you do know that Zoom's got a thumbs up option. Yeah, but look at that. <laughs> that's that's a real effect, that Mick. None of your CG. Yeah, yes, that's CG my effect. CGI version. I'm the Rick Baker of thumbs ups. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that about wraps it up for our Halloween special, right? Yeah. I think yes. that was pretty damn ace. Uh, remember, listeners, if you also thought that was pretty damn ace, we do a monthly bonus episode and that's exclusively on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the geek show where you can also find our other movie podcast director's lottery where we pick out a random director and do two of their films every month and my doctor who reviews uh, we'd greatly appreciate if you if you paid for our Patreon, but if you want to do something a bit simpler and a bit cheaper, you could just give us a review on your podcast provider of choice, and that also helps us out a lot. But until next week, when we'll be back at you with more pop screen, uh, that's been your lot. I've been Graham. That's been Mick. I've learned from my mistakes. That's Mick. No, Say goodbye. Goodbye, my screen. <laughs> what you just did was said that's Mick and pointed at Rob. Okay, so if I do this... No. <laughs> well, Rob that's Nick. Goodbye. And I'm Rob. <laughs> and <Yeah>. Bye. <laughs>